Hi, everyone. I'm Tom Jenkins, Fire Chief with the City of Rogers, Arkansas, and the IASC President in 2017 to 2018. And I'm Sheldon Gilbert, former Fire Chief of the Alameda County, California Fire Department, and now a Chief Executive Officer of Emergency Services Consulting International, or as we like to go by, ESCI. And this is the iChiefs Podcast. If you're searching for new ideas, looking to improve your leadership skills, and wanting to make a difference within your organization, this is the podcast for you. We encourage you to join us as we engage with fire service leaders who discuss the challenges and opportunities facing you and your agency. Nearly every fire department around is focusing on the effects and the potential impacts, both short and long-term, related to COVID-19. It's an everyday topic at the kitchen table in the fire station, in the conference rooms, uh, across uh, headquarters buildings. Um, and it's, it's something that we want to make sure at the IAFC we're talking about and we're learning uh, from those people who have experienced significant challenges related to the spread of this virus. Today we're joined by special guests from the Seattle Fire Department who will share with us some lessons learned in a variety of different categories in hopes that those of you that are listening today can take that information back to your departments and hopefully be better prepared and add to the calm of the situation and not the calamity. Yeah, thank you, Tom. This is uh, Sheldon, and and, uh, we are excited to to be with you today to begin a a series of podcasts we're going to do called Lessons from the Street. We've had a lot of podcasts and a lot of um, webinars and a lot of great information uh, coming out regarding policies and procedures and and statistical and and health and scientific analysis, and those are all very important. But we feel it's also important that we talk to the men and women on the street, in the dispatch centers, on the companies that are running these calls and how they're managing them and what they're learning and what the impacts are to our industry. And so we are uh, privileged to be uh, joined today by Firefighter Dispatcher Hilton Allman and Lieutenant Susan Stangle from the Seattle Fire Department, King County, of course, being uh, ground zero for the U.S. Uh, outbreak, and they have been managing this. And uh, by all accounts, where we stand today um, have been March 3rd are beginning to, to bend that curve and doing what needs to happen to to manage this this tragic and and large scale pandemic. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk to these individuals and hear from them for a few minutes here, and, and we look forward to what with lessons we can learn and apply at, throughout the uh, fire service and rescue industry. So we'll start by talking about uh, the community as a large Seattle, King County, the whole area there where you guys have been doing this this noble and amazing work. Um, and and I guess I'll start with with firefighter dispatcher um, Alman. Can you share with us and share with our, our, our listeners what have been the impacts to the community from your perspective as the individual who is on the phone line, talking to them on a daily basis and hearing their concerns and their fears and their needs? Well, I, I think it's a lot of it just has to do with uh, lack of knowledge, information. Um, for all of us, we've never experienced anything like this in our lifetime. We, we've seen the flu, and we're obviously this is somewhat close to what COVID is, but none of us have experienced anything like this. And so from a 911 call center perspective, um, uh, you still receive your 911 calls that need uh, or two emergencies, uh, the house fires, the vehicle accidents, the cardiac arrest, but you're also seeing calls from uh, our community members just um, afraid, 
not knowing. Um, they, they may have been in contact with someone who's COVID-19. What do they need to do? Uh, they may have mild flu-like symptoms. What do they need to do? So trying to help those community members as best we can. Uh, we're not the best agency to do that, but um, throughout this, we've been trying to incorporate as many resources uh, outside of the fire service to help these people, whether it be a nurse line that we can transfer the caller to to help them uh, gain more information from a healthcare professional, um, whether we encourage them if they're um, having no symptoms or they're concerned, you know, let's how about talking to your primary care physician. If you have health insurance, um, use a nurse line on the back of your health insurance card. So for us, we, as 911 dispatchers are really having to give information um, from other resources and agencies that we really never had to before um, because what we don't want to do is send our folks out there to people who are either concerned or have mild flu-like symptoms because, A, uh, we're just exposing our people to the possibility or increasing the possibility that they get COVID-19. We're also having to unnecessarily use our PPE for people who may just have mild flu-like symptoms. So we're doing everything we can when people call in concerned, may have some flu-like symptoms, to find a more appropriate resource for them to turn to, uh, community, statewide, rather than sending uh, our folks on the fire trucks uh, out there to uh, see them. How, how have they been responding to that, uh, that instruction and that education and, and trying to do that phone triage? Has that been well received? Have, the, have they picked up on that? And is that information getting out effectively or is it, has it been a bit of a struggle getting that accurate information or having them respond favorably? Well, it, it has been a little struggle on, on the dispatcher part because, again, this is something new for us. We typically just handle the 911 call which, um, and then able to triage and figure out what uh, what we want to send from our own resources. Um, and so for us to expand our uh, options, it has taken a little bit of time for us to kind of figure out the talking points that we can educate them, uh, tell them what we're hearing from them is more appropriate for a nurse uh, to talk to or a primary care physician. Uh, we do also offer up if they are having mild uh, flu-like symptoms that, uh, as the last resort, sometimes we can transfer them to a private ambulance company, which will then take them up to the hospital. Um, so I think um, I think overall, King County, the state has done a very good job of uh, educating and informing people, um, and the stay-at-home policy is working. So I think people are receptive to that. Um, uh, uh, the one thing we have noticed that to get all this information out, to have this conversation with them, it has increased the amount of time we are on these calls compared to a year ago. Um, but we also have experienced uh, not a huge spike in calls. So, again, with the stay-at-home policy, most people uh, aren't coming to work. So we're kind of – we've seen a little moderate increase from a year ago. So we're actually having the time to have a conversation with these people, give them the various options, and then um, let them choose which one they want um, to pursue. Excellent. Let me uh, let me throw it over to Lieutenant Stangl for a minute. And, and Lieutenant Stangl, maybe share with our listeners and us, what has this done to the community as it relates to you being the boots on the ground, the tip of the spear, whatever analogy we want to use, you're responding into the community, you're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And oh, by the way, we still do have vehicle accidents and structure fires and other medical emergencies that you're having to respond to as well as, as, well as other all-risk emergencies. How, how has this impacted the community from your perspective and your ability to meet their needs? 
Uh, yeah, I would like to, um, well, first, thank you very much for inviting us onto your show. I've listened to your podcast, and it's an honor having um, listened to some really exceptional people you've had guest-wise on your podcast. But I do also want to start by complimenting um, our dispatchers and the city of Seattle, because in terms of the effects of the community, that was an absolute teamwork right from the get-go. Um, the dispatchers taking the brunt of it in the educating the people that were calling 911, as well as the different city departments that were simultaneously reaching out to the vulnerable communities and trying to get information towards them and giving them alternative paths um, instead of just expecting firefighters to show up at, at all the calls. Another significant impact for the community was um, my fire station services, most of the shelters in the downtown core of Seattle. And so the city was able to fairly quickly decrease the crowding in the shelters and give them more space. So a lot of the, the normal run volume that we would normally see of people wanting to go to the hospital because they didn't want to stay outside or they didn't have any alternatives has definitely decreased dramatically. And I want to contribute that to kind of the relationships that our departments and the divisions in the city had prior, prior to this and seeing and forecasting those being an issue. So having said that, um, when the changes came down and they came down fairly quickly and as you can imagine there were changes like every shift but originally we had started off um, taking the lead and the dispatchers like I said was was sort of shielding us from a lot of the runs and they would give us information if we were responding to flu-like symptoms or somebody that was traveling we would put our PPE on and we would go forth um, and there was a situation uh, where we went on a run who, with an individual who was um, hit by a bus and it was a trauma, and off the patient went to the hospital, only to find out that just through the exam, they realized that his lungs looked like he had some possible COVID damage, and they tested him, and sure enough, he was um, positive for COVID-19. So that, in turn, kind of opened all of our eyes that, that this virus is everywhere. So we need to respond in our full PPE on everything. We can't just pick and choose flu-like symptoms or nursing homes. We have to be prepared going right out the door every time. And at first, I think we were all a little bit feeling a little cumbersome about showing up in this full PPE for somebody with a sprained ankle. But our public education and our PIO team, I think, did a really good job at pushing the information out to calm the community that, yes, even though we are showing up in, in this sort of level of protection, it does not mean that everybody we're seeing is COVID. It it's not meant to set an alarm. We're doing it you know, the coined word abundance of precaution. Um, and I think that helped a lot. So when we do show up climbing out of the fire engine and you know, our blue gowns and our mask and everything, um, I don't think it, it excites them. In fact, I think that there's a calming effect there, like, okay, look, they're ready and they're prepared and, and off they go. And so that's been, a, a, I believe, a, a big improvement in helping us sort of keep everybody calm within, the, in, within our community. Well, that's good. I mean, I think this will, um, you know, to your point, Lieutenant Stengel, I think that uh, much like AIDS probably ushered in gloves to be more normal um, as they should be for medical calls, I suspect that when this is all said and done, that uh, the use of N95 and respiratory protection on EMS calls, um, you know, I hope that becomes standard. And so uh, it's good to hear that there's some calming effect in the community. I wanted to pivot a little bit because you're, you, the workforce, uh, in my conversations, you know, there's really – 
Um, there's a couple of fronts for this. If you look at uh, New York's governor, Governor Cuomo, you know, he says that the battlegrounds in a lot of ways are um, in the hospitals, but that it's also taking care of our workforce that may become sick. Uh, I wanted to start with you, but I also I also want to hear uh, from Firefighter Allman about what impact it's had at the 911 center. Can you talk to us about um, what you've seen in terms of sick leave usage for your uniformed firefighters in the field, how you're handling PPE shortages, have you had to use alternative schedules? You know, what, what is the impact of the virus in terms of you all uh, showing up to work and, and being able to, to get enough people to, to protect the city of Seattle? This is, in my opinion, this is the hot topic. Um, we are really good at stepping outside of a fire station, putting on our safety gear and jumping into the mess, coming back to the station and being done with it. But this particular situation does not allow, allow that. Um, as we found out, as times was changing, originally we were looking at, oh, this stuff, um, you're not contagious until you have symptoms. It doesn't live outside of your body. And as time was going on, uh, we had to adjust because that information was proven to be wrong. And so the hardest, hardest challenge on this particular disease or situation, pandemic, is that the biggest fear or the biggest transmission is within the station. And you, you look at a firefighter, a firefighter is going to risk a lot to serve the community, but they will not do that at the risk of infecting their own family or another firefighter. They will be the hero, they will jump out a window, they will save a baby, but if you tell them that there's a possibility for them to infect their family or another firefighter, and all bets are off, and that's their weakness. And we're living in this environment right now where the fire station used to be the safe place, we can step out, we can do our job, we come back in, and we can be ourselves. But we cannot do that anymore. And we had a, a situation where just one firefighter comes to work, he feels totally fine, he leaves the next day, and he starts feeling crappy, some flu-like symptoms. Luckily, he contacted the department, gave him a heads up, hey, I'm not feeling so good. So they immediately whisked him in for a test, and it turns out he's positive for COVID, and they immediately were able to interview any firefighter that was within six-foot range of him for the whole 24 hours prior, put those firefighters in quarantine, and sure enough, didn't six of them start showing signs of flu-like symptoms and indeed tested positive for COVID. So all overnight, this stuff was not just the community. It's, it's our own family and it's our, in our own station. And the only way to protect us from that is to do everything opposite of what our culture is. So in the fire station, we're, we're no longer having uh, roll call altogether, shift change with all the yucking and the slapping and the, and the joking. That stuff has to calm down. We're, we're doing roll call in the apparatus bay now where we have room. You know, at my fire station, there's 12 people. Dinner time, there's 14 to 15 people at dinner. We can no longer eat all around the same table. We have um, occupancy loads in the different rooms where people congregate, like for the TV or for the computer. And so this is the, this is the serious challenge that we're facing now, is that, that, that drone of fear of this stuff is in my fire station and this stuff can potentially be taken back to my house at home. So in terms of being able to withstand that, I want to give huge compliments to the Seattle Fire Department because I think they've done, um, in my opinion, and I've had a chance to ask around, a remarkable job at getting a lot of information out and being supportive of the firefighters. 
So very, very early on, they recognized that if somebody is showing flu-like symptoms and there's even a hint that they might be positive COVID, they're not going to want to go home. They're not going to feel comfortable going back to their house, and yet we're going to ask them to quarantine. So the city of Seattle um, went ahead and put together hotel rooms that you can go to if you want to quarantine. They even have hotel rooms if for some reason you even think you might be compromising anybody in your family. You can go to this hotel room, and it's, it's fully paid for by the city. So those kind of level of support to know that these firefighters have options, they don't have to just go to work, put themselves at risk, and then go home and risk their family, that they can go to the hotel room and be supported by the department. If they get quarantined, um, they're put on administrative leave, which also shows this level of support from the department that I think um, allows the firefighters to feel secure coming to work. So there's a lot of um, kind of the safety net as much as possible, because obviously this is um, unknown times and, and the planning team's figuring this out on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but our level of depth and opportunity to, to work has been fantastic. I keep checking in with our staffing officers because I'm curious on what the depth is on people signing up to, to work extra shifts, and it is deeper now than it's ever been. So I think because we feel confident that we're doing everything that we can, and the department has a tremendous amount of support, we've got enough of the protective equipment, um, we're decontaminating the station twice a day, uh, our, house, our, uh, our hazmat team even put together um, an excellent disinfection group, and they were able to do some networking through other USAR members and came up with a complete plan where if any member tests positive in a fire station, not only are, are the firefighters take, handling their decontamination and their disinfection twice a day, but we can also bring our own firefighters in with special equipment to even up that disinfection opportunity to, to really make sure that this station is clean and bring peace of mind to our fellow brothers and sisters that, yeah, we, we've got your back and we're gonna try to make your workplace as safe as possible. So in terms of the the effects on the, the workforce and, and the deployment. So far, we are, as you said earlier, sort of treading water and holding strong at this point. I do know that um, just in my sort of interviewing with the plans teams yesterday, that we are still looking at being on the increase. We're not plateaued yet. And that's the assumption. And, you know, everybody's talking about the, the end of April because viruses apparently have a 12-week lifespan. So we're still in the up mode, but where we are right now, my impression is that we're holding strong, and a lot of it has to do with the early planning and, and the uh, preparation of having our PPE and the amazing support and information flow by the department as well as the city. That's great. Any idea um, what percentage of your workforce you've seen call in sick uh, through some of this? Um, well, I believe that if anything is COVID related, um, I could tell you right now that as of yesterday, because one of the things that we're doing is every day we're putting out what we call a daily Seattle Fire Department snapshot, which has been really good because as you can imagine early on in this, um, you know, obviously we have friends that work for Kirkland and Bellevue and, you know, with the firefighters that were really impacted with this early on. And so early, everybody was pulling information. Somebody's wife is the virologist and, you know, information was everywhere. And it was really important that we congregate and, uh, and our chief did a great job doing Skype meetings um, every four shifts so that all the information can get put together. He opened it up for questions. 
So one of the things that came out of that is this daily snapshot. So I can tell you right now that there are 24 Seattle firefighters that are in quarantine, 18 are in isolation, and 45 firefighters that were in quarantine are all now back to work. So we have this sort of running total. Now, I do not have a number if somebody is on disability, um, if it's COVID-related, uh, I know that they are being very proactive and asking them to just communicate that with the department because um, there's the possibility of, of being moved to an administrative position during quarantine times, um, which allows your paycheck and, and all of your support services um, continue. So I can only tell you those numbers, and, and our total force is 1,200. So I mean, I'm not the best math at the top of my head, but we got about 40 people that are out COVID-related out of a workforce of 1,200, and we have about 200 people on duty at any one time. So we still have the depth to uh, to keep rolling without any impact this far. Well, I, I don't wish uh, I don't wish uh, to be one of those 40, and certainly think of those people. But out of uh, 1,200, that is a that's a respectably low percentage uh, that have been impacted. So shifting gears a little bit to Firefighter Allman, you know, the 911 center in particular is, is on the front lines um, in a different way and dealing with a lot of these, you know, the panic, the anxiety from the public, having to make sure that you're warning, you know, some of the fire department resources being sent to potential COVID situations. What have you seen for the dispatch center? What impact have you had on the workforce there, um, including even mental health? I'm sure that there's some anxiety and this is not business as usual. What can you tell us about the workforce impact there? Um, so for us, you know, we're, um, you know, I, I consider the 911 call center for the Seattle Fire Department uh, the tip of the spear. Uh, and some people have said uh, every engine and truck in the city has four-person staffing, and uh, a lot of us consider, in operations as well, consider us to be the fifth member. Um, so I say that, but uh, out of the... 1,200 or so members in our department, there's only uh, about 36 uh, certified dispatchers. So, you know, it's, it's not like we have a giant, and our normal staffing is seven per shift, and we have four shifts. So we have about 28 assigned who work there full-time, and we have about maybe, uh, I don't know, 10 to 12 who are certified but still work in operations. So, uh, as Sue was saying, you know, right now from talking to staffing officers, they have uh, people's vacations have been canceled. They have more than enough people to work the overtime uh, in case people lay off due to illness. Down where I work, we don't have that luxury, and there's no one that we could quickly train to fill our uh, seats if, say, a shift becomes contaminated because or needs to be quarantined because a member unknowingly came to work uh, asymptomatic and found out later, just like what we had at a firehouse. So for us, you know, from uh, early on, we really became very sensitive to the fact that we need to lock our building down to everyone unless you work at the fire alarm center so that we don't have an opportunity for someone either from a fire station um, or even one of our vendors who normally have access to the fire alarm center to come in and, and unknowingly um, spread COVID-19. So we're very sensitive to that. The, um, and so that has had an impact, just like Sue mentioned. Uh, we twice a day do our own cleaning as well as uh, have a vendor come in and clean for us. So really trying to be very heightened aware of uh, personal hygiene um, and not uh, only for yourself, but uh, also our workstations. We have workstations there that are 
are shared throughout the shift by various members um, uh, when they come back from the, to the floor from a break. So making sure we clean that station, the computer, keyboards, uh, the desktop, everything as well as possible. So again, to eliminate that. Um, and, and so from that perspective, everyone is very much aware and very, and any, the message has been st uh, stressed over and over. If you show any signs and symptoms of any kind of, cough, runny nose, whether you think it's a cold, allergies, or a flu, um, do not come to work. And I think everyone has been very receptive to that. They realize that we're a unique workforce. There's really no one that we can replace us. Um, uh, it's not like if the, someone comes to work unknowingly, has COVID-19, and we need to decon the fire alarm center. It's not like where uh, if a rig needs to be decon, we can put it out of service and, and then uh, put in service a spare apparatus. We don't have that luxury. We would actually have to physically move to our backup center, which is at Seattle Police. So again, being very cognizant, uh, we've implemented things to try to limit the ability, just like um, we put in, uh, we just put in place yesterday, we call them sneeze guards, where we had a local company build these plexiglass type of barriers that could help separate the consoles even better. Um, we're trying to, right now, people have to share bunks throughout the day, so we're uh, using space that's not being uh, used right now, uh, like our conference room. We're turning that into another uh, two-bunk bedroom so that everyone can have their same bed and not have to share throughout the day. Um, so there's some of the steps that we've taken. And in terms of um, the anxiety, I, I think for us, um, the I, one of the biggest anxiety aspects for us is making sure that we screen the call appropriately so that if the caller um, is we deem to be minor, non-acute, has an illness that's either concerned or maybe just minor, that we have other resources that we can turn that person to, or if we do need to go, that we are doing our due diligence to make sure that we're finding out if the patient or if anyone near them has any signs of COVID that we uh, screen it, we notate it in our call-taking mask so that operations uh, is informed prior, even though um, right now the uh, every EMS call operations is treating the patient to be COVID uh, positive until proven otherwise. But for us, we still want to do diligence. Um, and I'll say as far as I know, and, and Sue may know differently, uh, all of our members who have tested COVID-19 positive have not come from a patient. Unfortunately, it's been from our own members. So I think uh, for us, the anxiety is making sure we protect our members as best as we can, as well as serve our community members as quickly as we can so that everyone from that call knows what they're going into, um, is aware, and that so that when they get back on that rig, um, it, we created for them the best possible uh, situation to work in with all the knowledge that we can uh, give them as quickly as possible. There's a lot of best practices embedded in both of those answers, and, and the city of Seattle is in very good hands with the men and women of the Seattle Fire Department. That's that's a lot of good stuff. Let's um, let's let's 
shift over to kind of the last topic we wanted to talk about before we get into kind of the takeaways, and that's deployment. And, and obviously there's been an impact on how we deploy resources, how we respond to resources, who we send when we send them. And I was wondering if you could share, and we'll start with you, Firefighter Alman, in the dispatch center specifically, what has changed? What has changed as far as your, your basic uh, entry point interrogations, as far as your medical priority dispatch system categorization, utilization of different protocols, omega protocols, whatever you're doing, could you share with us kind of what the impacts regarding deployment and dispatch are uh, because of COVID-19? Uh, sure. Um, and I just want to uh, start with we are very fortunate that uh, this didn't happen a year ago. And, and the reason I say that is a year ago we were just about ready to transition from our old emergency dispatch protocols to our current set. And with our old set, they work great. Um, but it didn't have the dynamic feature that we have now. And what I mean by that is when we wanted to make a change to our old set of emergency medical dispatch procedures, it was a process. Uh, we had to get IT involved. Um, and it took, you know, the, the length to get that done was just not quick. Um, a year ago, about a year, well, about a year in May, we switched to our new one. It's called Cordy. Um, and what is that has allowed us to do is uh, this was uh, worked on by a dispatcher in-house with the company. And so the dispatcher, now we have someone who can uh, on the fly, if need to, make changes uh, as, uh, as the situation evolves. And COVID is a perfect example. Uh, we have gone through, I think, maybe four different screening processes. And in the past with our old EMD, if we had this had occurred, we would just basically give sheets of paper to the dispatcher. And that's just not a, 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 an accurate, consistent approach. Um, you know, paper gets lost. Um, uh, it's hard to keep track of stuff. But with our new set of protocols with Cordy, um, our first set of questions back, I don't know, maybe starting in mid-February, late February, was have you been to China? And then as things quickly evolve and it spread to Iran and Italy, the next set of questions was, have, have you or anyone been to Iran, Italy, or China? Uh, and then it evolved to now uh, basically uh, as, are you or anyone have the following symptoms? So my point is we're very fortunate that we have a, a, a protocol now that we can uh, change within a couple hours where we did before. And so what this has allowed for the dispatchers is a consistent process that we um, can dispatch if we're going the most appropriate type code or response plan, um, get, our, get the help going for our community members, followed by uh, the screening process that we've enacted. And um, we are right now on a daily basis averaging about 98 to 99% of all the EMS calls we are, we are COVID screening. Now, it doesn't mean we're getting it right all the time, but all those calls are having some kind of COVID screening involved, whether it's uh, do they have a cough, fever, sore throat, runny nose, or if the patient says, I don't have any COVID screening uh, symptoms, or, you know, sometimes we just can't determine, uh, like Sue said, uh, a, a vehicle versus a pedestrian. You're not going to be able to probably find out, but we're still screening. Um, and so what, that, what, what we have now is allowed us to give a consistent message to ops, allow us to broadcast that consistent message to operations. They can see it in their notes. 
it's easy for the um, dispatchers to have a, a program that they all are all working off the same sheet of music. Um, and so really for us, um, we feel like um, under the current circumstances, our dispatchers are doing a really good job of screening. Um, and, you know, initially we were all screening for um, EMS calls. Uh, but then after some feedback and from operations, um, we started expanding that to fire calls. And, and, and what I mean by fire calls, not the, uh, not the significant ones, not like a house fire or vehicle overturned or hazmat call, but calls where we're going to go into someone's private home, uh, apartment, or small business. We're going to interact with the caller because they're complaining of a CO detector that's gone off or a smoke detector has gone off or there's an uh, odor of electrical We've expanded our, our COVID screening so that we'll send help, um, and we re- reassure the caller. Caller, I have help on the way. I just have a few additional questions regarding to COVID, and everyone's been understanding that. We screen the call, we screen the uh, caller or the bystanders or the patient, and then we quickly put in the notes what we expect to what we expect or what they told us, so that operations has an idea prior to us uh, getting there. So really. Um, what we've been able to do consistently is really a reflection of the new program we have and, uh, and the changes we can make quickly in-house without any delay so that we're trying to keep up with the curve and not lagging behind it. Right, right, excellent. How, how about um, Lieutenant Stengel in, in the station itself and the deployment and the response? Has there been any impacts, changes, or adjustments based on COVID-19? Absolutely, on every front. Um, I do want to uh, just emphasize our dispatchers, as uh, Hill mentioned early on, they're all firefighters. So, you know, they're coming from a background of being on an engine, a paramedic, or anything like that. And those guys really are our prelim recon team prior to us leaving the fire station. And that has just been invaluable for us. So I'm glad that Hilton had a, a chance to kind of explain that level of protection that they give us on the fire engine. So one of the things that we do besides, you know, the PPE has been talked about, and I I don't need to readdress that, but um, one of the other things that we're doing, and I think this is common knowledge, is we're limiting the amount of people in the hot zone. The hot zone means, you know, in the room or within six feet of the patient. So we're trying to, like on an engine company, because we run four people, only two people are getting fully dressed in their PPE, and this is just to calm down the burn rate of our gear. And then we have two members that are standing um, outside of the hot zone. They have their gear in case something changes and we need them, um, but they can be out there ready to go, um, but not burning up their gear for if it's not necessary. Um, and then the other thing that we're doing is when we walk into the house, we sort of ask questions again what our dispatchers do and and which is a little bit odd because usually we walk in and we just focus on the patient or whoever needs help but now not only we do that but we need to interview everybody else that's in the house to see if anybody else has uh, COVID uh, symptoms have they been in contact with anybody that has been tested positive so before we can even jump in and start doing our own things we do one more check or um, the other thing is we just make sure that everybody is outside of our space if we're on the sidewalk or in the store or something like that so so instantly it's that scene safety which um, you know changes the game that means scene safety means nobody around us and then we can start um, interacting with the patient with just having one person do the blood pressure and the hands-on stuff and the other person standing back and doing documenting and assisting in that way um, the other, the other sort of, oh, there's been so many changes. One of the changes is when we get um, out to the apparatus, we do a full decon of our equipment. Um, we've got different things now on the 
on the trucks and the apparatus to assist as we uh, doff over all of our protective gear. We do a decontamination of all of our stuff, our shoes, our pants. We put everything in a bag. We keep it outside of the rig. We drive back to the station. We decontaminate um, the inside of the station. And depending on the situation, the scenario, we might be out of service while we all go t- take a shower and wash our gear and change our uniform. Um, that what has always been an option to us, but now it's a it's a lot more. We're more diligent on on doing those extensive decontamination before putting us back in service and ready for the next one. Um, in terms of kind of fire station life, I think I touched a little bit on how impactful that has been to how we live in a fire station and and how challenging that is for us to change our culture overnight. Um, as this has been sort of unfolding, what you find out is just different firefighters have different levels of acceptance. Some people are, you know, way over, we're not doing enough. Some firefighters are, this is, you know, just a flu, this is overblown. And then pretty soon the next shift, these two people swap roles and, and their judgments of what's going on is totally different. So you have to sort of work with that. And that's where that strong leadership and uh, setting the example of, hey, this is what we are going to do. We are going to decontaminate the station. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, it's pre-rung by our dispatchers initiate that with a special notice twice a day to get us all on the same page to disinfect the, the fire station. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, the way we eat is different, the way we socialize is different, the way we share information. Um, our training has been, uh, was canceled fairly early on. Um, I think some of that is really positive because it just takes so much longer now to really concentrate on the decontamination um, and getting us prepared. And then the bottom line is when everything is said and done, it's just our immune system that's ultimately going to protect us. Because when you look at how pervasive this virus is, um, we can do everything we can. We can control as much as we can, but there's still this element that it can jump on you at, at any point. So trying to, you know, get your rest as much as possible, squeak in a little bit of exercise on duty, but one at a time as much as possible, and just hope that you're, you're staying healthy. Um, our drilling has changed dramatically. It's a lot more, you know, hey, I'm going to send you an email at roll call. I'm going to send you guys an email with some attachments at your time, you know, sit at a computer and, and drill that way, or we're limiting the amount of hands-on stuff that we're doing. So it's been um, dramatically, almost more impactful inside the station um, as it has been rolling out. And that has changed. In the beginning, we were all, you know, very um, conscientious on how we're rolling out of the station, but I think that was quick for us to accept putting the gear on. You know, you look at the firehouse now, and before you would see the bunking boots sitting next to the fire engine, now you see the bunking boots and the blue gown all out and ready to be deployed, which is a completely different visual as what you had prior to this. Um, but it's the inside station that still is every shift. I think we're amping it up a little bit more as more of the firefighters are getting to this acceptance rule of, hey, this is important and we have to do our job inside the firehouse because that's where we're vulnerable. Well, one thing's for sure. Both of you have offered a fantastic insight and a viewpoint from King County, the city of Seattle, and um, no doubt that uh, your sister and brother firefighters on the job there 
um, appreciate um, what you've offered us, um, the rest of the fire service throughout the country and really throughout North America. Um, the information you shared has been very valuable and I suspect um, will help um, calm some anxiety uh, amongst fire service leaders and at the same time help us prepare. And so uh, we appreciate both of you uh, joining us today, and uh, we're forever grateful that you spent some time with us. So Lieutenant Stangle and Firefighter Almond, I hope that uh, the rest of your time in dealing with this crisis goes without um, any, any crazier disruption, and I hope that both of you stay healthy and safe. And thank you so much for carving out time to share uh, with the rest of us as to what you've learned and what we could be doing and, and, and hopes that it's kind of a force multiplier for us. I'd remind our listeners that uh, the IASC is uh, dedicated to helping its members and making sure that there are resources available. President Ludwig has done an exemplary job in forming various task forces to look at different angles of this issue from the economic impact to just what we need to be doing and understanding about this virus as it communicates and spreads throughout the country. Uh, I would always remind people that, it, that no matter what resources um, you have available to you, that one of the best for members of the fire service is our website, iafc.org slash COVID-19, where you can uh, participate in the various dashboards, learn information, get the latest and greatest guidance, and ultimately do those things to keep your department safe. We appreciate all of you for being with Sheldon and I today, and no doubt we'll be back soon with another COVID-19 related podcast in the hope of preparing and protecting our members. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this iChiefs podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or Spotify, where you can subscribe and be sure to never miss a show. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next month.